again, we're going to kind of clean this up as far as um, what discipleship is, because I did have several people contact me throughout the, week, uh, throughout the week over last week's message when I said, I only disciple about 15 people in this church, and we're not a huge church, because discipleship takes a lot of hands-on time, and so folks were maybe thinking, well, what, what, am, what am I then? It's a good question. But also let me say I'm not looking to disciple everybody in this church because it's not proper, and we'll explain some of that more here in a minute. Um, anyway, I'll let the lesson speak for itself. So I take a quote that I didn't get 100% accurate, so I don't credit the individual who I borrowed it from, but basically, a thousand sets of eyes watching you preach for 45 minutes every Sunday morning is not discipleship. We got off on this subject when I was teaching last message on um, wisdom for pastors, and it was I, the whole statement I made was something like this to point out to pastors: our job is to make disciples, not grow megachurches. And I referenced my my cousin who has pastored huge churches, or I should say, been on pastoral staff at huge churches, and he said, "Look, we're not even discipling these people. We don't even know who they are. There's so many of them; they're just coming and going." And I said, "Well, cuz, then uh, then where's the great commission being fulfilled?" And he said, "I don't know. I don't even know if this is the will of God." And he was a part of a church that was 34,000 people. We have a a commission that says make disciples. It's a two-fold commission, co-mission. Co is in two, mission, assignment, co-mission. Win the lost, make disciples. There's no assignment in there that says grow a church as big as humanly possible in accordance with your national cultural mandate of numbers, numbers, numbers. So what we are seeing in the modern church is we are seeing a total loss of discipleship, and we perhaps need to get back to that and understand that just because we come to church doesn't make us a disciple of anybody, not even Jesus Christ. And that ought to really sink down into our soul. Matthew 28, 19 in the VBE translation says, Go then and make disciples of all nations. That's That's half of our mandate. And Dr. Lester Sumrall taught his disciples, his, men, his uh, sons and daughters in the faith, as a church, the tithe and offering is only spent on two things, winning the lost or making disciples. And if it isn't winning the lost or making disciples, quit wasting money on it, which is a, a mantra and a word of wisdom. We administrate our church finances here. We're either spending the money on Vacation Bible School, which is winning the lost, making disciples. It's on television, which is winning the lost, making disciples. It's missionary trips, which is winning the lost, making disciples. It is on payroll, but the payroll manages the infrastructure that allows us to win the lost and make disciples. We don't have any pet programs. We don't do any social justice with it because that ain't winning the lost or making disciples. That's keeping up with the academic pressures of our carnal nation. Discipleship does not take place from the pulpit. Even right now in teaching on discipleship, I am not discipling you. I am teaching you what this thing looks like. Real biblical discipleship requires the discipler to get his or her hands dirty. It's one-on-one time. We are called to make disciples. I pastor our church, but I personally only disciple about 15 people on a regular basis. And four of those are my wife and children. So this church is about 200 people. And I only disciple 11 of those congregation members. So let that sink in. Now I teach you all. That's my job as a pastor. A pastor is a teacher feeder and I lead the flock. But that doesn't mean I have my hands on every sheep. And I don't believe I should. 
But at the same time, if we're called to make disciples, I'm only pastoring 11 people. What if this church was 1,000? I would still probably only be able to disciple 20 people out of 1,000. So now we have a gross disconnect between what we call converts and discipleship. It's awfully quiet. I don't know if like, you're like, what, 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 what's going on? You mean I'm not a disciple of Christ? I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you who I disciple, which isn't this whole congregation. It's not even everybody in this room right now. Amen. Pastoring is all about governing, teaching and preaching, and feeding a congregation. The pastoral office doesn't really disciple anybody. Remember, the Lord told Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. That's pastoral. And yet everybody's told to make a disciple. Every one of you is called to make a disciple. But you can only bring a disciple up to your level. It, when I did judo and jiu-jitsu, the, the Japanese mindset with traditional classical jiu-jitsu is you could train anybody your rank and lower. And so you were taught, even if you're a white belt with a yellow stripe, to get that new white belt and teach them what you know. So you're always bringing somebody up and along so that the master, the sensei, the third-degree black belt, doesn't have to spend all of his time with every step of the way. So honestly, everybody in here is supposed to be discipling somebody which is less than them, and I don't mean that as a lesser value, but a lesser skill set, and bringing them up at least to your level. And hopefully then somebody's bringing you up higher, and the whole thing moves forward like tank tread on the battlefield. Amen. But an individual can only drag so many tank tread. All right. Discipleship is a lot more personal than governing a, a church, teaching and preaching, and feeding a congregation. Discipleship is very personal, and I think you can understand why I don't disciple everybody. I don't have the time. Below are some Bible facts or biblical facts about biblical discipleship. So there is a difference between preaching and discipleship. And this is probably where most Christians are deceived. They assume going to church makes them a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that's not so. Because there's folks that go to church that are demon-possessed every service and could be delivered should they want it and the anointing allowed it. That doesn't, they're not a disciple. You, we've all heard stories of folks going to church for 40 years and all of a sudden realizing I'm not even saved. And they're an elder and a deacon. Have their 35-year-old Sunday school pet pen on their lapel and they come down and give their heart to Christ at the age of 65. Were they ever a disciple of Christ? No. But they were in church every service for 35 years to get their 35-year Sunday school pen. Discipleship is personal. There's a difference between preaching and discipleship. Preaching and teaching will feed and exhort people to action, but discipleship will actually show them what that action should look like. We help people hash it out. Discipleship is like boots on the ground training. Pastoring is like the general ordering the invasion. Discipleship is the drill sergeant how many, how many folks are in a you know, battalion when you're in basic? And a drill instructor is over how many, Caleb? Drill instructors have about two per, two per 30. Two per 30, 15 apiece. About what I'm doing right now. That's pretty cool. I think I'm, I'm hoo-ah, God bless America. I'm feeling pretty military. I disciple about 15 people. So a drill instructor, drill sergeant has about 15, two per uh, 30. He's the one responsible for teaching the cadets or the privates how to lace up their boots, how to clean their M15, M16, whatever. He's the one that's designed to teach them how to 
care for their kit, keep their knife sharp, whatever. And then the general says, go, this is our assignment, this is our mission. He doesn't disciple any of them. He marches them. Being a disciple means you have a personal teacher investing in you. And it's not proper for any pastor to disciple the whole congregation. He just simply can't and do everything else he has to. But everybody under him in the local church should be discipling somebody. The Great Commission is for everybody, not just the fivefold offices. The Great Commission is even for your little child on the playground who she knows something she just learned in vacation Bible school, and she brings little Sally along and says, let me teach you about the armor of God. Yeah. You just grab somebody who knows less than you, and you bring them along. And that, that pool of people that know less than you should always be increasing because you're increasing. If you're still discipling the same little puddle of people, you might need to change yourself and grow up. Discipleship is done in private away from the multitudes. And so we have a lot of references to that. You can research all these later. Discipleship is done in private away from the multitudes. This is why I'm not interested in ever being a megachurch because I look at megachurches and as a pastor, I look at the quality of the sheep because I'm an expert at that now and I think there is not any discipleship going on in this megachurch. Look at us mega flesh. There might be mega bucks, but there's mega strife, mega politics, mega hassle, mega, mega carnality, mega sensuality, mega dark corners. No, I'll just keep us lean, lean and mean. I've often in my mind has gone, would I rather be a big old fat sumo wrestler or a little Bruce Lee? And who do you think would win that fight? <laughs> the disciple is not above their master. And now with this word master, as the King James uses it, is not owner of property, which was curios or Lord. This word master is, comes from didache or um, didactic, didaskalos, which means teacher, expert, in Japanese, we'd understand it as sensei. Uh, he's the expert. A disciple is not above their master. And honestly, if that master or didache, the teacher, keeps learning, the, the teacher, the disciple, will never be greater than their teacher. I don't ever expect to be greater than Dr. Barclay because he's always advancing, and I'm always trying to keep up with my discipler. Disciples want to be like their master, and this is a critical heart to really being discipled. You have to set your heart and say, I want to be like them. And most folks, I should say, in the average church are not interested in having to have the responsibility and the standard that's the pastor, the pastor or the mature elders are walking in. And therefore, they don't pursue discipleship because they know if I become like the pastor or the elders or the missionary, a lot more is going to be required of me. There's almost this built-in understanding in the average Christian to whom much is given, much is required. So I won't pursue much because I don't want to be required much. So they're happy just being a pew warmer, a chair warmer, a Sunday morning Christian. They're happy in their nice little Middle Tennessee income. They're, nice, they're, they're happy to be in a spirit-filled church that has truth and casts out devils and does missionary work, but they don't really want to be an integral part of that leadership team. So they just kind of hover on the peripheral. They're like, in the Bohr model of the atom, they're like the electron that might easily be given away to another particle. Just hovering on the outskirts, free-floating, a free ion, come and take me. And, and sometimes we lose them and don't even realize we've changed charges around here. 
And that's okay. Go be blessed. (laughs) There's a difference between disciples and multitudes. I wrote an article on this several years ago. There are a lot of scriptures that indicate there's a difference between multitude people around Jesus and disciples around Jesus. Let's read these real quick. Then spake Jesus to the multitudes and to his disciples. And they came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, in every mega church, you have great numbers and then real disciples. And Jesus came down with them and stood in the plain in the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Even in a church of 200, we're going to have disciples and then everybody else. And it's totally up to the believer what they want to be. And this is also why we don't pursue people. Discipleship is all about you chasing someone greater than you. I don't chase anybody. Doctor, uh, excuse me, Pastor Vaughn taught me that in college. We as pastors chase nobody. Remember all those examples, and we'll get to them here in a minute, one by one. They came to Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, I want to follow you. And he said, let the dead bury their dead. What is that to me? And walked away. He wasn't going to stop there and wait for them to get their house in order. All right, go, go ahead. Go do the funeral. I'll wait. No, the Lord doesn't wait for anybody. How, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what to do. Take up your cross and follow me. And the Lord just walked on. After every one of his meetings on hillsides from the boat, then he'd steal away. And those that wanted more followed and those that didn't went home. Sounds like the exit, the exodus after every Sunday morning of a mega church. Till we assemble again for our next hour next week. All right, this is really a lot quieter than I thought it might be, but maybe that's why we're having to teach it. Maybe we didn't really understand what discipleship was. I will also say this, as far as me discipling people, I've had a lot of folks come to me, a lot of men, and say, I know I should be around you more, and I don't know why I don't. I said, I don't know why you don't. Well, I know you're so busy. I said, here we are at lunch. Do you know why we're here at lunch, sir? No, because you called me up and said, can we have lunch? So how come, I told him, how come you only do this every 18 months? I'll buy the meal. I don't care. You're hungry for food. You're not hungry for discipleship. And meeting with someone for lunch every 18 months is not discipleship. All right. Luke 9, 15. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down by 50s in a company. So you had 5,000 men plus women and children. And then you had the disciples. We're, just, we're still looking at biblical facts about biblical discipleship. Over and over again, G, uh, the gospel refers to the disciples as his disciples. Jesus never claimed the multitudes as his. Even in a local church, there are those the Lord calls his servants, his disciples, and then there are everybody else. The multitudes or multitudes or multitudes are generally unsubmitted vagabonds, though they can be found in the presence of God during a church service. 
Being in the presence of God does not make you a disciple. Going to church does not make you a disciple. Now, we're, we're, we're just kind of showing you what the, the Gospels present, and then we're going to start to see how this should maybe adjust in our life. Jesus had to teach everyone how to be his disciple. Even then, very few actually were interested. He taught, and we got a lot of examples. Then will you be my disciple. Do this, then you will be my disciple. Do this, then you will be my disciple. Disciples turned to their master in time of trouble. In this verse, they were in the boat with Jesus and were still struggling. Master, carest thou not that we are perishing? They turned to him in their struggle. That's how you know you have a discipler. You turn to them in time of need. When I started taking on a couple sons in the faith, and I don't like to use that term because I don't think I'm old enough yet, but these are, these are fellow pastors that look to me as their pastor. I asked Dr. Barclay, how do I, what do I do? Give me wisdom because I don't know how to do this. And he said, you make sure you tell them to come to you before they make decisions and to come to you before they make messes because it's easier to clean up a mess before you make it than after you do. He says, it'll, de <clears throat> it'll demonstrate they're submitted when they're bringing the big decisions to you for your wisdom and not afterwards when it didn't work. And here these disciples did that thing. They're, they're with Jesus. They're submitted to him. They're with their discipler and they're still struggling and they cry out to him. And I can tell you, a lot of folks... They, they make a mess for themselves, and then six months later, they bring it to me. That lets me know I'm not their discipler. We've been mad at you for three years. That lets me know I'm not your discipler. Uh, we should have brought this to you earlier. Well, how long ago did this happen? Two years ago. That means I'm not your discipler. Bring the messes before you make them, or as they're unfolding, not after you've tried to struggle together for six months and you have bloody, bloody fingers trying to work it. Amen. Real disciples become like extended family because you're with them so much. You're investing in them. You're praying for them. And it's not just like the discipler being a father, but it's also the others being like children. When John the Baptist was beheaded, it was his disciples that took his body and buried him. When Jesus was crucified, it was his disciples that cared for him, not his mom, not his brothers. You can tell you have a discipler when it feels like family. And I can tell I have disciples when it feels like my kids or folks, my brothers and sisters, I'd do anything for. And that isn't everybody in our church. But then again, it's not the responsibility for me to be like that way towards every person in our church. Disciples take on the flavor, the style, the vision, the wisdom, the doctrine, and the success of their discipler. That's how you can tell you're becoming what you're beholding is when you start to change. I just point out, I wear a suit. I try to raise the standard as high as possible. Sometimes I preach in African clothing. Sometimes I preach in clothing from wherever I'm coming from the world. And I'm so I don't, everything looks a little bit different around the world. But if we're here in America, I don't see how you look at me every week and you still come dressed in a T-shirt. Now, I notice this. Everybody now wears tie bars, which I don't care. It's neither here nor there. And because I always wear a vest, I either have a Filson vest or I have a, a um, uh, uh, what's my other, my gun? Weatherby vest. I wear vests in the wintertime. I'm noticing a lot of people wearing these vests now, and I kind of get tickled at it. I've always done vests ever since I was in high school. And that's kind of becoming what you behold. There's some kind of special thing at work when you call yourself a Christian, maybe a minister, and you still don't take on the form in front of you. When I, do, I dress like this on purpose, 
Now, just so you know, I am not a fancy guy. We were backpacking this weekend. I backpacked in a kilt and it was 18 degrees. I am much more comfortable in the outdoors, in boots, in flip-flops. This is not my persona. So this can't be you saying, well, that's just not me. This ain't me either. Thank you, sir. I still got hippy-dippy running through me. I'm an outdoorsy guy through and through. I, I wear the same sweatshirt when I go home. I mean, it's just, this is not me. So you can't sit there and say, well, that's just, well, that's, that's pastor style. This ain't my style. This is excellence for Christ. And you seem to be allergic to it. When you have a discipler, you take on the flavor, the style, the vision, the wisdom, the doctrine. You, you become a different person altogether. Amen. After three and a half years of ministry, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, possessing the Spirit without measure, only made 120 disciples. That's how hard this thing is. He appeared to 500 potential candidates after his resurrection, and a third of them said, yeah, we're still with you. Only 13 of those disciples, the 11 plus Matthias and Justice, had been faithful the entire three and a half years. <laughs> and yet how many folks did he, were there when he was water baptized by John? How many folks there saw the heavens opened? How many there saw the Son of God get up with the glory and the majesty from on high to begin his ministry? Only two in the beginning there stuck with it to the end. We see a pattern, Dr. Barclay teaches this, that when you're born again, you're a convert. You've been converted from darkness into light. You're a baby Christian. Then you must begin your discipleship process. We would also call that sanctification and training. And then after that has taken root for several years, we might call you an epistle. But I think we kind of assume because we once got converted, we once got born again, we gave our life to Christ, we made a decision, we got water baptized, that makes us a disciple and a leader. You could be 60 years old in Christ and still barely be a convert. So this thing called discipleship, if you're still a lot like the old man when you first got saved, you're not really a disciple. And the epistle, what that is, is that's where your lifestyle so looks like Christ. People can look at your marriage. They can look at your money. They can look at your health, your mouth, your family, and say, I want to be like that. If I could just, if I could just look at them, I would know how the gospel's lived out. But you only get there through the discipleship process. And I disciple 11 sheep in this church. So you've got to find somebody that can help you come up a little higher because there's no sense in reinventing the will. Let's look at the Lord's pattern of discipleship. Jesus Christ did not disciple every person he preached to. The Bible demonstrates that there were two categories of people surrounding the Lord's ministry, multitudes and disciples. Both groups acted differently, therefore he treated each group differently. Matthew 5.1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came up unto him. Disciples are always much closer to the instructor than the multitudes are. The multitudes are happy keeping their distance. They fear that getting too close might cause them to be pulled upon and their life be inconvenienced. Yeah, a couple years ago, 10 years ago, I was asking Dr. Barclay how to raise up some of our so-called preachers 
because we had a used to we were there was such an emphasis in our church on ministers and call to the ministry. At one point, we had over 10, 15 percent of our uh, adults felt called to the ministry. But when that's all you talk about, everybody kind of gives birth to that vision because, you know, it's easier than working a real job, right? <laughs> so let's dream for an easier income. There's no reality to that. But so I said, how do I train up these preachers, Dr. Barclay? He said, well, if they're real preachers, they shouldn't have a problem. If you call them 11 o'clock at night, say, come meet me at the church. We're going to pray for an hour and then we're going to do a Bible study and then we'll anoint you with oil. If they complain, they're not called. They have no reason they can't get out of bed 11 o'clock at night and meet you at church on a notice, on a whim. Because what if the Holy Ghost speaks to you and says, go to that hospital, go. And by the way, if you are a preacher, you're going to be awakened at 2 a.m. And you can't tell that woman whose husband was just killed in a car accident, I can't be there for you. So he taught me these things. And really what it was was to prove who really wanted ministry, who really had it, and who was just kind of chasing an easier career in life. And by the way, ministry is the worst career in life. It's the best career in the kingdom, I suppose. But in the end, it all pays the same in heavenly rewards if you do your thing. But for what I get paid, the amount of time I put in, I get paid less than minimum wage. And I have way more responsibility than the guy making a taco at Taco Bell. My only benefit is I don't go home smelling like cheap beef and a deep fryer. <laughs> Straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, and he sent the multitudes away. Real disciples go before their instructor to help with the next assignment. Multitudes just go home. Service is over with, we're done. We're going home. That was a good message. Can't wait for the next one next week. Really enjoyed this series. Real disciples are helping with the assignment at hand to keep advancing the kingdom. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. Disciples will come when they are called. Called to church, called to service, called to work details, called to outreaches, called to prayer meetings. Multitudes come to hear and be healed. They come to receive, not really give. Jesus was impressed because this multitude had stuck with him for three days now. Yay! Wow, three whole services in a row. I'm so proud of you guys. Look at that, baby steps, baby steps. <laughs> oh, Lord, most of the American church is just a multitude. They come to hear and be healed. They don't come to serve. They don't, they're not going to go to the cross with Christ. They're not willing to be beheaded. They're not willing to give of an extra offering. No, no, they, they come to get the fishes and the loaves. They come to have their child delivered of a demon. They come to have their dead raised alive, but they didn't come to advance this kingdom. They came to get their blessing on, ow, build a TBN kingdom. Huh. Matthew 9, 36, but when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus viewed the multitudes as shepherdless, yet they were still in his meetings. Think about that. These men and women and children were in his meetings. 
They were having their babies healed and their loved ones healed and having miraculous prophecies. They were hearing the gospel from the Son of God, and yet the Son of God looked at them and said, they still have no shepherd. That shows me you can be in a church and have no pastor. You can come to church faithfully and still be without a shepherd and still be faint and be scattered. Today, countless multitudes are in gospel meetings in the presence of God, yet still have no shepherd. These saints will always be susceptible to spiritual fainting and dispersion. When you have a real discipler or a real pastor, you don't get offended and quit. Our community, all the, I, I'm friends with probably 25, 30, 35 pastors in our town. I fellowship with a lot of them on a regular basis. And so I get to know the new pastors who come here from other places because their denomination reassigns them. And they all pick up on it quick. This, re, this town, this body of believers in Cookville is like dandelion weeds. They just move from church to church to church to church. I was hanging out with some local Baptists and they were mocking it. They were mocking the quality of sheep in our town. They said, what? You, what? you mean sheep hop from church to church in this town? No. I said, I, I'm no stranger to sarcasm, sir. I, I hear what you're saying. The Baptists are frustrated with it. And they have been traditionally faithful people. And then one of my Baptist friends said, I just wish those guys would tell me before they just quit my church and go over to your church, pointing to the other pastor. Those are shepherdless sheep because they are easily dispersed. And yet they're in a gospel meeting. They have no discipler. They're just a multitude-riddled individual. This, these saints, those without a disciple, will always be susceptible to spiritual fainting and dispersion. Mark 9 says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning them. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? I like this because it shows me that Jesus went to bat for his disciples. His disciples. He saw his disciples and a multitude about them, and he realized his disciples were in trouble. In this moment, he cared nothing for the multitude. My disciples are in trouble. I don't care if you guys are here for a gospel meeting. Leave my disciples alone. He stood up for them against the spiritual bullies and finished the work his disciples could not accomplish, which was casting the demon out of the lunatic boy. The meeting got out of their control. They were still being discipled themselves, and the Lord comes down and defends his disciples. I totally understand that as a disciple maker. I will go to bat for those that come to me on a regular basis who've given me their life and trust me and ask questions. I'll call them up. I have found that those that, that pursue my discipleship, and I am not saying this because I need more of my time taken, but I have found those that come to me and they, they say, help me, fix me with this, show me how to do that, how do I do this, I want to do this better. God talks to me more about them than the rest of the congregation. I'll, I'll, they'll, be, they'll be on my heart constantly, and I can be thinking about them anywhere in the world, and the Lord will talk to me about them. But kind of the peripheral multitude folks, I don't really hear from God for. They're kind of left to their own devices. And therefore, the quality of their life is, is less. In the meantime, when they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod upon one another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, you got so many folks coming together to hear Jesus, 
They're treading upon one another. I mean, this is like a concert sellout. We're packing the auditoriums with people hungry for God, except Jesus talks to his disciples first. He doesn't address the multitudes. All these thousands of people thronging and treading upon one another. It's a dangerous situation. And Jesus looks at all that. He's not hungry for a crowd. I have learned this in America, watching it, even here recently. Some preachers are just hungry for a bigger crowd. And Christ was not. Thousands of people with which to show off his glory, and he's just interested in his, his, his 12. Amen. Jesus always addresses his disciples first. The multitude always seems to be the last to know or the last to hear. So think about that. We're just kind of going through the gamut of the Gospels to see what discipleship looked like in the time of Christ because that's our pattern. So let's look at the Lord's disciples. Jesus did not disciple everyone who came to him, but he did give very strict requirements for those who claimed they wanted what he had. He told in Luke 14, he says, you got to hate your family and even your own self. When you hate your own life, it's easy to come up at 11 o'clock if we're going to have a little preacher meeting up here. When you hate your own life, it's easy to be part of a work detail. When you hate your own life, it's easy to go help build the ramp for the widow on your Saturday. When you hate your own life, it's easy to come door to door evangelizing on Saturday once a month for three hours. Oh, such a burden. Three hours of cookful slamming the door in my face. Oh, this cross to bear. Grow up. It's easy when you hate your own life. It's easy to tell mama, no, we're not skipping church because you're in town. Whoa, you're supposed to love me. You're supposed to love God. Come to church. Maybe you get saved before you go to heaven, mama, before you die. <laughs> he said, take up your cross, die to yourself and pursue him. He said, forsake all that you have, even what you think is a ministry calling. Our church 20 years ago magnified our personal ministry callings above the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything rose and fell in our life upon our, our fabricated ministry calling. But that's all that was talked about in many flavors. So that's what you hear. That's what you believe. If we started emphasizing dance ministry, which we will never have a dance ministry in this church because they're totally carnal and secular, then everybody would fabricate a dance calling. That's, a, that's a, the whole dance ministry, the streamers and banners and leotards. That's a crazy-matic invention, and it's full of sensuality. And you don't ever put the fat chicks on that thing because nobody wants to see a 300-pound 18-year-old in a onesie leotard, even if she is good with the streamers and the banners. But if that's all we ever talked about or presented to the people, every little girl would want to be on that dance team, and she thinks that was her ministry. There's no ministry in a dance team. Doth that offend you? You've come from a weird background. Let me just explain to you. I'm going to pick on Caleb here. Let's say Caleb struggles with lust. He does not. He has a beautiful wife. They have a healthy marriage. Let's say Caleb does, and we have a dance team. Well, you never put him in baggy clothing, not in all the charismatic churches I've seen. You always put him in ballerina leotards because you got some kooky ballerina teacher who got spirit-filled and thinks she needs to bring her ballerina career and make a ministry out of it. Well, she doesn't know how to put them in baggy clothing. She puts them in unitards. And if they're dancing, they're probably physically fit. So now, 15 feet from the front row, you got 18 to 25-year-olds 
it's cold in that sanctuary. Dancing around in a swimsuit, every curve, every nook, every crease, every cranny, every fold exposed. This is for the glory of the Lord. <laughs> Caleb is undressing the 18 to 25-year-old in his mind, saying, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord. The glory of God is nowhere on any of that because we've just condemned him to sin from the altar. I wish it all shut down and go away because it's carnality. Most of those moves they learned from hip-hop television anyway. Now we got dance teams at you know, the NBA games or the football games doing the same thing. This is not worship. This is carnal secularism entering the church, and let's put ministry on it. I don't know how we got off on that. Oh, fabricated ministry callings. <laughs> Pastor Vaughn used to preach against it. He said, they're never, Wendell was our bass player. He passed away. Wendell was a very, very, very large man. Very large man. And to make fun of it, one Christmas Eve, he came out in a tutu to mock it. Because they'll never do that. Because nobody wants to see a 400-pound man in a tutu dance. But it's unto the Lord. Well, if it's unto the Lord, we should let everybody do it. Even Jeff King. <laughs> no. Even his wife says, no. All right, enough of that. America makes up the weirdest stuff and calls it ministry. The Lord's discipleship ranks were very reminiscent of David's mighty men of valor. Look at this little chart I made. You have Jesus Christ, King David. Jesus Christ had the multitudes. King David had the 600 in the cave. Then Jesus Christ had the 70. David had the 400. Then Jesus Christ had the 12. David had the mighty men of valor, which were only 37 in number. Then Jesus Christ had Peter, James, and John, and David had Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah, the captains. Then Jesus Christ had John the beloved. David had Joab, the captain. There will always be a hierarchy present in discipleship because not every Christian is equally hungry or committed. That's why we, we take this kingdom concept and we apply it to the natural. There is no such thing as equality in the natural because there's no such thing as equality in the spirit because the hearts of people are what determine everything. The Lord's disciples did more than just listen while he taught. And this is where I want to apply this to us as, as churches, church member. His disciples didn't just sit in the service and listen. They asked him deeper questions in private. What did you mean by that? Can you explain that again? How come, can you explain that parable to us? What did you mean when you told, beware the leaven of the Pharisees? What are you talking about? Is it because we don't have any bread? In the boat, they're asking questions. On the mountaintop, they're asking questions. In the house, they're asking questions. Along the way, they're asking questions. They're hungry. And they don't have a problem bugging the Lord. They prayed with him. You know, we do have like five prayer services a week. I lead about three of them. I, I would love, I don't get the opportunity, I would love to be able to pray with Dr. Barclay. I would love to be able to be with him to see how he talks to God. When he tells stories about getting to pray with Lester Sumrall in, in Dr. Sumrall's hotel room, I envy that. What, what it must have been like to, to hear how Lester Sumrall talked to God when Lester Sumrall was in his 70s and 80s. What does that kind of relationship with God sound like? Because it's not a relationship I have yet. I, you realize how carnal and shallow we are as Christians? You have opportunity to pray with your pastor, but you don't come. 
You get to hear how I talk to God, how God talks to me, how God has used me at my little stage in the kingdom to advance. And it ought to give you something to aspire to, but some of you are still stuck with, now I lay me down to sleep. Um, and dear Lord Jesus, and, and sweet baby Jesus, and, 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 and Father God, 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 and Father God. I mean, holy smokes, if you said, Pastor Chris, you know, Pastor Chris, I was thinking, Pastor Chris, if we, if we go out for lunch, Pastor Chris, would you like Pastor Chris, maybe nachos, Pastor Chris, maybe pizza, Pastor Chris? You know, Pastor Chris, I really thank you, Pastor Chris, for all that you do, Pastor Chris. Oh, Pastor Chris, my goodness, you have got to learn to pray better, folks. Holy cow, I don't know where you picked up this weird vain repetition, but maybe if you came to prayer, you might learn how to pray better. I promote Miss Eva because that woman can pray without ever touching tongues. She never says the same thing twice. And she doesn't say sweet baby Jesus every five words. Father God, and you know, Father God, and um, 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 she doesn't have any ums. She's a prayer warrior. <laughs> All right, I got to keep moving. They served him. The Lord's disciples served him. They fetched transportation for him. They got donkeys and boats all the time. We want to stay and hear the rest of the sermon. No, I need a boat. Go get me a boat. Yes, sir. They fetched food and prepared meals for him. They went before him setting up the next meetings. This is just some of the stuff they did. This is part of their discipleship. They were also harassed for him. And they were also all martyred for him. Modern application. So let me burn through this real quick. The following points are wisdom from modern times and observations taken uh, from the pattern of discipleship practiced by the Lord Jesus. 95% of discipleship takes place beyond the sermon in private with one-on-one time. When I first uh, was submitted to Dr. Barclay and I was troubleshooting some issues, I called him up. I was honored that he called me back or and or I texted him. I said, are you available? He said, call me now. So I called him and I, he really helped me with some things. And I said, I, I appreciate this. I just know you're busy and I don't want to take up, up your time. He's up any of your time. He said, stop, stop right there, son. I said, yes, sir. He said, you've got to change that thinking. I said, okay. I said, I know you're busy. He said, I am busy helping somebody with ministry. I will always be busy helping somebody with ministry. It might as well be you. That changed everything for me. I'll bug him. I don't care. I'll just call him now. I don't even text him much. If I know where he's at, where he's doing, I'll say, do you have a moment? He'll say, call me in five, or he'll call me right back. But I used to just fearfully text him. Have you got a moment, sir? But when he said, I'm always going to be busy helping somebody with ministry, it might as well be you. That just changed it all for me. I don't mind bugging him at all. It, but it takes place outside the sermons. What I'm doing right now is not discipling any of you. I'm instructing you. True discipleship requires trust, humility, hunger, and a desire to be different from what you already are. There can be no defense of your current condition. If you have it all together, why are you not behind the pulpit? (laughs) Why are you still hovering at the same station in life you were five years ago? So there's no defense for where we are today. we got to advance to the next stage. True discipleship is inconvenient and costly. It's more than just a Sunday morning experience. Discipleship involves more than just informational learning. It involves instruction, correction, rebuke, adjustment, assignment, 
reinspection, and more correction until a lasting change has been made. Amen. True discipleship will result in a changed flavor, a changed lifestyle, a changed attitude, a changed mindset, and a changed person. It's evident I don't disciple everybody in this church, nor is everybody in this church disciple, because even as I pastor you, some of you are the same flavor you've been 10 years, 15 years. When will you be changed? A husband's best disciple should be his wife and children. A mother's best disciple should be her children. So I would say this to any minister or preacher, don't win the world and lose your family. Because I, I love you all, but I love my family way more than you. And, and yeah, and that's how it ought to be. I love you, but I'm not going to save you and, and lose my family. It's just not worth it. Wives should look to their husbands and or a Titus II woman for discipleship. There are a few women in this church we promote for this kind of discipleship because we trust them and they have proven track records. Uh, I don't, I may say it here in a moment, I don't, there's only really one lady in this church other than my wife that I disciple, and that's Hannah, simply because she works for me, she's like a daughter to me, and she's around us all the time. But she, she gets it from both me and my wife, because we're correcting her, tweaking her, and it's very easy for her to bring something to my office that we're working on, and that turns into her asking me questions, and we're discipling. Other than that, maybe the only other lady I've discipled is Miss Amy because she was a worship leader and she would meet with me every Tuesday. So we were discipling on worship and leadership and stuff like that. But it's not proper for men to disciple ladies because we understand how that can get into trouble very quickly. So a woman should look to her husband for discipleship. But that means he's got to be a disciple too. And as a, as a single woman, I would never marry a man who could not disciple me. I would never marry a man I'm already more spiritual than more mature, more knowledgeable. I wouldn't do it because you're going to be behind the eight ball from the moment you say, I do. And you will never pull out of that rut, not without a miracle. But women, if you're single, you should look for a Titus II woman, a mother in the faith, and let the leadership of the church tell you who that is and not let, don't let them tell you that I'm a Titus II woman. Now we're back into Jezebel again. Like, mm, no, no, I, I think she's a Jezzy II woman, not a Titus II woman. Generally speaking, and for propriety's sake, men should disciple men and women should disciple women. As a pastor, I disciple men, and I expect that influence to trickle down through the rank and file of their homes. There are actually a couple ladies in the church who go to my wife more than their husbands come to me. And my wife can be very, she's kind of not seen a lot, but she's been doing this just as long as I have. And she masterfully balances a thousand more things than I do. And uh, there's a lot that can be learned from her if there was humility in the woman's heart. So for what that's worth, I have only discipled women if they were under my direct leadership at the church. Otherwise, I would be usurping their husband's or father's authority. I also disciple Kylie, but usually Kayla's right there. I disciple Kylie because she's our worship leader, and I'm always talking to her how to bring in the anointing, how to adjust a song, how this song won't work on that song. And so when I disciple her, it's really just in the worship arena. It's nothing else. That's Kayla's job. Kayla's her husband. And that's also why Ephesians says, wives submit to your own husbands. It's often you want to go around him to get discipleship from somewhere else. When you disciple a person, you will, be, you will only be able to bring them up as high as you are in the kingdom. 
Therefore, though we are all called to make disciples, not every Christian is qualified to disciple yet. You can never view your discipler as your equal. This will breed the sin of familiarity and contempt. And being old neither qualifies you to be a discipler nor does it exempt you from discipleship. Just because you've been in the church a long time doesn't mean you're qualified to disciple. And just because you're old doesn't mean you're beyond needing discipleship now. I got a lot of stories to tell on that, but I'm out of time. Maturity levels and fruit production are the kingdom's metrics. Pursue people who are mature and full of fruit, not wrinkles in an AARP card. Wrinkles in a retirement card does not make you qualified for discipleship or to be a discipler. God only promotes true disciples. He does not promote the peripheral multitudes. So we must both, we must aspire to both be disciples and to make disciples. The kingdom is advanced by self-replication. As it has been stated popularly recently, be one, be a disciple, make one a disciple, send one a disciple, and never forget that it was Judas Iscariot, one of the Lord's best disciples, who betrayed him. So there's the other end of that spectrum. So I always like to hit both sides of any ditch. So that, in a very fast 50 minutes, is the nature of discipleship in the New Testament. There's a lot to that. I go back and look at those verses and ask the Lord to show you. Father, we thank you for this lesson. May it bless those in the future on Pod School and whoever get this recording. Help us to be disciple makers and to be discipled ourselves. Help us to grow up as a congregation and as a ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.